So when moments like that occur, I will say it's usually not the person's fault. (laughs) For the record, technology has a mind of its own. However, I will say this as well. It is good for your soul to not be recognized until something breaks. So, our task this morning is very similar to the task that we have as the church when we open God's Word every Sunday morning and every time in our private life. And that is twofold. We want to rightly understand it, and then we want to pursue being transformed by it. It's not merely enough to understand it, to understand the meaning of it. But, of course, this is actually the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, Both that we would understand it rightly and that we would be transformed by it. So, before we go any further, let's pray. God, you are good. Help us to understand your word that we may know you more deeply. And that our lives would be transformed as you would have them be. We need your help. We ask for the help of your Holy Spirit in this twofold task. And we pray this in your holy name, Jesus. Amen. In order to understand the meaning of our psalm this morning, Psalm 67, which is often called the missionary psalm, you may have guessed, let us place it within the context of the whole of Scripture. So we're going to be moving through Lots of scripture. Most of it's going to be on the screen. But I would invite you, if, if, uh, if you can, to follow with us. There are a couple of scriptures that won't be on the screen. And most of the value of looking at and reading the word of God is going to be something that carries over beyond the time when you have a screen to look at. So to be in the practice of looking at God's word in printed form, which I don't believe is necessarily a more holy technology than projection screens, by the way. It is a technology print, in case you hadn't thought about that. It's just a 400-year-old technology. But what is helpful for us is as we connect with the Word, um, we can feel the, the, the Spirit leading and guiding us. And so, especially as there are two or three scriptures that won't be on uh, the screen for us this morning, I would encourage you to follow with us. Let me read again our psalm as we, as we start out. May God be gracious to us and bless us. Look on us with favor, Selah, so that your way may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations rejoice and shout for joy, for you judge the peoples with fairness and lead the nations on earth, Selah. Let the peoples praise you, God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has produced its harvest, God. Our God blesses us. God will bless us and all the ends of the earth will fear him. Taking a look at verse 1. May God be gracious to us and bless us. Look on us with favor. Selah. The question comes to mind, how often are our prayers centered on ourselves and our needs? I'll give you a great example. So just this morning. I intended to be with you for the Sunday school hour. 
And I laid back down on the bed in the hotel after packing up thinking, I have plenty of time. And then I probably would still not be here this morning at this point if not for an encouraging text message from the brother who was going to serve with me as a co-elder in Martinsville to remind me that he was praying for me this morning as I was sharing with you. And that was at 20 minutes till 10. In Waynesboro. And I had not checked out. And so for me, I had that instant prayer come up in my soul. Lord, please show me grace. I intended to be here. I wanted to be here. And suddenly the disorder inside of me began to grow. Oh my goodness, I'm not going to make it. They're going to worry that I've fallen off the side of Afton Mountain on the way down. That They're going to have to you know, figure out who's going to preach. And, and instantly, I was reminded of what it is that I'm here to share with you this morning. And that is, it's not about me. And ultimately, it's not inappropriate for me, as we did earlier, to ask God to show us favor and to bless us. It's not inappropriate. But our task here this morning um, actually is mostly to recognize that even when he does this, it's not primarily about us. We see in verse 1 of Psalm 67 a direct reflection of what is known as the Aaronic benediction from Numbers chapter 6, verses 22 through 27. I would invite you to turn there. It is up on the screen, I believe. Um, This is a blessing that was given by God uh, to be given over Israel by Aaron and his lineage, the priests of Israel. I'd like to read it for us here. The Lord spoke to Moses. Tell Aaron and his sons how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, may Yahweh bless you and protect you. May Yahweh make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May Yahweh look with favor on you and give you peace. In this way, they will pronounce my name over the Israelites and I will bless them. Our Christian worship services often end with a benediction. This is something that we're familiar with. As a matter of fact, you've probably heard this very blessing given in a Christian worship service. And that's almost exactly what our psalm, number 67, was most likely used for in the life of Israel. A benediction. And the point here um, is to help Israel drink deeply of who God is, that their lives would be marked by who he is and the purposes that they've been given. But just like we said a moment ago, just as when I prayed, God, have grace on me, that I can actually go and serve these people this morning and that I won't be so late that they'll be worried and and all these kinds of things. Even as I prayed that, I recognized that that request in my heart for blessing and grace was not ultimately about me. It's about God's glory going forth. And we see this directly in verse 2. All of this, may God bless us, language is given purpose and meaning in verse 2. So that your way may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. Quite simply, the text is just teaching us that God's blessing has a specific purpose, okay? It's, it's not just... Okay, here's your precious that you can take and hold and, and, and cover with, 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 with a bushel. Does that language sound familiar from a song you might know? The purpose is that the nations would be brought to a saving knowledge of God. Okay. And actually from the first descriptions of us human beings in the Bible, we can see that we exist for God's glory and we are given a purpose. 
Look with me at Genesis 1.28. And this is after God has made us in His image. There's a big deal to do with having been made in His image, by the way. I believe we spent a bit of time on that last time I was here with you. We could spend all day on the significance of being made in God's image and what that means for our humanness. But immediately after that, He blesses and commands us. And those two things are connected. In Genesis 1.28, it says, God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. Quite simply, our purpose and the purpose of God's blessing is that the whole earth would be filled with worship to God. Not just human beings. But we have to remember that at this point in the story of Scripture, the earth being filled with human beings is the earth being filled with the worship of God. Sin has not yet entered the picture. So there's no contradiction there. When God says, fill the earth with human beings, He is saying, fill the earth with the worship of Me, with My glory. And to rule over is not to be heavy-handed and to abuse and to use up. It is to have dominion, this beautiful idea of what it is to have a relationship as an under-shepherd of creation. That's what the word dominion is supposed to mean. Now, I realize here in Rockfish Valley, there's currently a debate about what dominion may mean. I've seen the signs. I did a little research. But that is what dominion is intended to mean. And that is what it is to be human, is to be bearers of God's image and God's worship into the earth. And in Genesis 1, there is no dysfunction. There is what the Hebrew language would say is called shalom. And it's not just everybody's not fighting. We often translate that word peace, and we think of peace as, well, there's nobody fighting. So we'll call that peace. But genuine peace is the absence of malice. Even if you can't see malice... If it's there, then the Bible's idea of peace is not present. Shalom is the perfect, harmonious flourishing of all things. The way God intended it to be. And I'll tell you again, I could, I could think on this and dwell on this idea all day. And give glory to God for how He intended His creation to be. It's a beautiful thing. Don't skip over it. Don't skip over it. There is peace, there is shalom between God and man and creation until Genesis chapter 3. And you all know Genesis chapter 3 very well. It is the the turning point in the story of Scripture where sin enters the world. Go ahead and turn there. Specifically, we're going to be looking at verse 15. Here, shalom is shattered and the curse begins to hamper Mankind's God-given purposes in the world. Most importantly, the filling of the earth with the worship of Him. The relationship between God and man, between man and man, as well as man and creation, is fractured. Shalom is broken. We see in verse 
15 of chapter 3, the first mention of God's redemptive mission to defeat death, to defeat sin, and defeat Satan forever. And here he is speaking to Satan specifically in verse 15. And he says, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and I will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Now, let's pause there for a second. This is a a situation where the translation of Scripture that you're using has a great bearing on how you read that verse. I'm using the Holman, and in the Holman, it says, He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. How many of you have something different other than strike in those two? Would you read what you have for us? Okay, good. Does anybody have a a, a version where the two words aren't the same? Are you reading the NIV by any chance? Okay, he's reading the NIV. And it says to the serpent that his head will be crushed. Okay, and that he will only be able to basically annoy and pester us as the seed. Okay, and ultimately when we see this idea of the seed, who are we really talking about? Jesus. Jesus is going to crush the head of the serpent. And the Hebrew very clearly shows the distinction between those two statements. And it's very interesting to me. I'm not nerdy enough to understand it all. But it's very interesting to me that some translations use the same English word there when it is clearly a different concept in the Hebrew. I'm able to look at the Hebrew enough to go, that's a different word. And that's about it. That's about where my skills stop. And, and my Hebrew professor told me he was happy with that, so I'm good. But this has a great bearing on how we look at Scripture, how we look at the world. Because in verse 15 of chapter 3 of Genesis, this is the first mention of God's redemptive mission in the world. That He is going to send the second member of the Trinity, the Son, Jesus Christ, whose incarnation we just celebrated To crush the head of the serpent. To defeat Satan. And to win back. To buy back his creation. Of which we, being made in his image, are the crown. So let's let's move forward a bit to chapter 12 of Genesis. Okay. Here we see that God is moving about this mission. His mission of destroying Satan and redeeming his creation. We're starting to see it take shape. There's much that's gone on. Unfortunately, we don't have seven and a half hours to be here this morning. So we're going to have to skip a rock across the top of it a bit. But the beginning of chapter 12 is another key point in redemptive history, in the narrative of Scripture. The Lord said to Abram, Go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who treat you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. As a matter of fact, it is this passage, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, that serves as our primary guide in understanding our psalm today, number 67. Because the call and blessing of Abram, soon to be Father Abraham, is in fact the calling of Israel, and further down, and by extension through redemptive history, the church of Jesus Christ. That's us. That call is to be the people of God. One famous pastor in his book based on our psalm today put it this way. He said, 
Israel is blessed that the nations be blessed. In the same way, Christ comes to Israel so that the nations might receive mercy and give God glory. The blessing of Abraham, the calling of Abraham is for us. We are the nations. We would not be here gathered to worship the God of the universe if not for God's redemptive plan. Tracking down through history the way that it has. And it's exciting to think about. Ultimately, we read in Revelation chapter 7, and this one is not on the screen, so turn with me. Take a very hard right and keep going. We're all the way at the end here. In Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, and we're skipping a rock pretty far here because we, we need to get the big picture and, and then settle back into our psalm. Chapter 7 of Revelation, verses 9 through 10. After this, I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were robed in white with palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne, and to the Lamb. In the end, representatives of all the peoples of the earth will spend eternity giving praise and honor and glory to our God. And if we zoom back in on our psalm, verses 3 through 5 sound a lot like this. Verse 3 says, let the people praise you, God. Let all the peoples praise you. There are two elements I want us to focus on here. First is this idea of all. It means all. Good news, it's simple. We try to make things a little more complicated than we ought to sometimes. There's no secret in the Hebrew. There's no special knowledge. It means all. All peoples. There's no distinction being made here, none whatsoever, all peoples. No distinction, not by what people group or cultural affinity people belong to, not by the color of someone's skin, not by what part of the world you're from, not by your education or your wealth or your your intelligence. No, all peoples of the earth are made in God's image And they will be represented in eternity, praising him. In fact, the ideas that we see in the the words nations and peoples here in this passage, in this psalm, and throughout scripture, really, they have very, very little to do with the national governments or the borders, the nation states that are associated with our world today. When we look at a world map, what do we see? We see borders and capital cities that represent governments. And this is the way we think of nations and peoples. That's not what's being referred to here. As of this morning, the International Mission Board reports that there are 11,168 people groups. Representing over 7 billion people on the earth. A people group can be understood as a group of people who are associated because of their, their heritage, their lineage, and show similar culture, language, food, other customs. This is a people group. And of those 
11,168 people groups, 6,544 are believed to have less than 2% following Christ. 6,544 people groups have less than 2% following Christ. Well over half. Of those 6,544 people groups with less than 2% following Christ, almost half of those, 2,982 people groups. And this represents 215,990,000. 215,990,000 people are completely unreached. They have no witness to who God is other than the creation, which is a witness to who God is. We can see him when we look out the window in the beauty of his creation and the order that exists. We can see him and they can see him, but they do not know the name Jesus. They do not know of his redemptive work. They see him in the reflection of the world, but they they also see what's marred and broken about it. 215,990,000 plus people have no witness beyond creation to the God of the Bible. They do not know the gospel of grace. They've not tasted of the love of the church. And yet we are told that all the peoples will praise God. They will be redeemed and restored to their original purpose. As we have been the worship of God and the spreading of that worship into all the earth. They're to be a part of it too. Verse 4, let the nations rejoice and shout for joy. For you judge the peoples with fairness and lead the nations on earth. Selah. By the way, have you ever wondered what that word Selah in the Psalms really means? Nobody totally knows is the answer. They kind of know. They get the general idea. The general idea is stop and meditate and process what was just said. Don't just keep moving. Make sure... You're processing what is being said. It's kind of got an amen, kind of a parallel. But there's more to it than that. It's not, we're done, which is how we use amen. It's. Drink deeply of what was said. So, even though there's a stopping point here for us to meditate and process, there's more. But I want to I want to focus in on verse four for just a second. And the question that remains really out of verse three still is, why are they praising God? Why are they rejoicing? And the answer is. Because God. Just God. Have you ever thought about the fact that he's really all we need? And he's not a genie in a bottle for us to rub when we need something. It doesn't mean we're not to bring prayer requests and supplications to him. We are. He's specifically asked us to do that. But his role in the universe is much bigger. And ultimately, as we're learning, even those things that he provides for us, those provisions, the graces, they are much bigger than us. Right? It is God's nature. It is himself that causes the nations to rejoice. He is just. He is perfect. He is righteous. Something we cannot attain apart from the work of Christ on the cross. But in his justice 
and mercy, He has made all of the redeemed to be counted as righteous through His work, His redemptive mission. That's what they're excited about. That's what we are to be excited about. Let us as the nations rejoice. It's a contagious thing. You can't keep it to yourself, kind of like the flu. We had two weeks of flumageddon in our house. Our fourth child is due in February. Praise God. But my sweet pregnant wife got the flu. And so did everybody else. And we were locked down and in the bed and barely making it for about two weeks. And it caused me to think, I only wish the gospel that I carry around is this contagious. And why is it not? I had lots of time to think about that as I lay in the bed. So here we are in verse 5. And you may notice that verse 5 looks a lot like verse 3. That's because it's the same. And it says, Let the peoples praise you, God. Let all the peoples praise you. This emphatic repetition of verse 3 serves to instruct us that this is to be our prayer. God, let the peoples praise you. Let all the peoples praise you. Moving on to verse 6, it's interesting to read verse 6 after reading the first five verses because it seems so different. It starts to be, begin to discuss specific blessing, specifically the harvest. Verse 6 introduces this different idea and the apparent change in theme, along with the use of the past tense there, it says the earth has produced, okay, has led many along the course of church history to think that this was this psalm as a whole was intended as a, as a psalm of gratitude to the Lord at harvest time. And it may have been used as that. I can think that might be a good thing, actually, when you are taking in the harvest. Just as every time I see my paycheck go through, I probably ought to say, God, thank you for blessing us that we can be a blessing. That would be a good reminder. That might be helpful. And yet, I think there's much more to this psalm than just a reflection at the time of God's provision. And it seems most natural to view it that way. And the truth is that there is a Hebrew technical thing that I had to look up written by somebody way smarter than me. That helps us understand that the past tense can actually support this idea. What it is really saying is that it's as good as having already happened. So when we read in verse 6 that the earth has produced its harvest, I believe that is what the text is saying to us. That God's going to use the earth, His creation, to be His avenue of provision for us that we can be a blessing. And you're seeing here just a small taste of what redemption does. Redemption allows that which was broken to serve according to its original created purpose. Remember, it wasn't just the relationship between God and man and man and man that was affected by Genesis 3. It was the relationship between man and creation. And in that same curse, God says that the fields will produce thorns and thistles and you will labor and you're going to have a bad back. The Garden of Eden is not how it's going to be. Where they walked 
amongst the lavish provision of God all around them. It's not going to be that way. You're going to have to work. Can anybody say amen? Have you ever felt like the work is working against you? It's warring against you? Well, the Scripture says that's what is going to happen. And yet, here we see that God is going to provide through creation. The earth will bring its harvest. Verse 7, God will bless us and all the ends of the earth will, will fear Him. And here in God's wisdom, we have a summary of what this is all about, this psalm. Almost like a benediction within a benediction, if you will. And this, this closing verse brings home once again the big picture that we are blessed to be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. And it's a challenge in there as well to all the ends of the earth. Think about that. We tend to think very small geographically, don't we? Imagine, if you will, a world in which there was no airplane, no automobile, no bicycle, and how big the words, the ends of the earth, must have been to them. We kind of go, yeah, I can jump on a plane and go somewhere if I wanted to. Uh, Yeah, you can actually read about other cultures. We have the internet, the great blessing and curse that it is. And we are connected on some level with parts of the world that we would not have been otherwise without the invention of that very compound and complex technology. Don't lose how small we are. And how big God is. Don't lose how small we are. And yet how big the mission of God is. Don't lose how small we are. And yet the grace. The blessing of being used as his instruments. In that expansive mission. To all the ends of the earth. To all the peoples of the earth. Don't lose that. Don't lose the wonder of that. In the busyness. And the tyranny of the urgent that dictates our day, if you're anything like me, at least. So how do we apply this psalm into our lives? That is our second task, of course. As we study the Scripture, we need to understand it. What does it mean? And we need to apply it and ask God to transform us with it. Well, I think there are four main ways that we can be transformed by Psalm 67. Since we are blessed to be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth, It is our joyful duty. It is our nature, okay, to translate our tangible blessings. You know what I mean by tangible blessings? The things that God has blessed us with, the ways he blessed us, his provision to us. We need to actually translate. We are called to, we are made to translate these things for the purpose of the peoples of the earth coming to know and worship him. Now, if you were to go and put a little red pen mark next to your budget, your monthly budget, on every item that has to do with spreading the gospel across the world, how many red marks would you have? Now, I'm not saying stop paying your bills. Go go your house into foreclosure. Get evicted. That's what honors God. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying, as Americans, in the context in which we live, we must begin to order our thoughts in such a way 
that reflect who we are in Christ and who we are as image bearers. Our culture, outside of the church, has lots of other ideas about how we should order our life. Lots of other priorities. And honestly, they sound pretty nice. I think I could get into that. Of course I need a bigger TV. When my Redskins come on, I want to see every detail. I don't know why I do, but I do. That was a freebie for the Cowboy fans in the room, by the way. But this is, this is why we give money for missions. Okay? This is why we partner with other believers in mission. This is why our life is to be flavored, our daily lives, as a farmer, as a plumber, as an executive, as a husband, as a wife, as a child, as a human being, is to be flavored with getting the glory of God throughout the nations and to all the peoples. That's what it's about. That's what we're about. That's what we're made for. And frankly, everything else is going to leave you empty. There's nothing else that satisfies but God himself and the spread of his glory. It's infectious. Second, we need to live like we understand that all people means all people. Now, this is a controversial one. This is a hard one for us. Often we don't even see the ways we're not doing this. I know in my life, I see it very rarely. And that makes me suspicious. This psalm, which is consistent with all of Scripture, eliminates the ability for a gospel person, a follower of Christ, to withhold love from any person. Racism makes a mockery of the gospel. Division, strife, drama, think Jerry Springer. All of this, this way that we celebrate brokenness, it makes a mockery of the gospel. And yet there's a part of us that can kind of enjoy those things. And you get into the spirit of gossip and he said, she said, whatever that looks like. Maybe it's just all in your heart. Maybe you never spread it to other people. But if you... Hold that in your heart. You are making a gospel mockery. That is not what the gospel is about. It is a contradiction to the gospel. And we have been given in Christ the antidote to the brokenness caused by sin. We are to distribute it to all. If there was a pill that could fix the flu like that. Now, I know we have the TAM flu and it makes things a little better, a little easier, goes a little quicker. Great. But if we had a pill and it was readily accessible, that you could drop 10 off at every door in this valley, and there would be no more flu, would you not do it? Should you not do it? Those are sometimes different questions, aren't they? And ultimately, that is the battle that goes on in our hearts, is it not? Because we have the antidote for brokenness, not of ourselves, but because of the gospel, because of who Christ is. And in the current racial climate in our country, this is an interesting conversation that's going on. Many of my friends growing up in Martinsville don't look like me. And I knew there was tension, but I, was, you know, I didn't really have a whole lot of perspective. I played on the football team. I was kind of unique in skin color on the football team. Okay? This was normal to me. These were my friends. These were my people. 
But it is ultimately the church, followers of Christ, who should be on the leading edge of genuine gospel-centered reconciliation efforts. We should be the peace bringers because we are the peace holders. We bear this duty, this nature. Now, that's hard. And honestly, the answer is not to, all right, let's go fix it. That's not how it works. The answer is to listen, to be humble, to know what you don't know about the experiences of others in this world. Nothing has brought this home for me more than traveling abroad, traveling to places like the Ukraine, to Mexico, and most probably vividly is Haiti. You go to Haiti and you cross the border from the Dominican Republic, which is not a wealthy nation, into Haiti, and it feels different. There, there is a burden on that land. It was founded on voodoo. When they kicked the French Christians out, they said, our religion is voodoo. And it's a dark place. And when you go and you actually watch the way they live, you'll have eight or ten families that share a little pit as a kitchen. It opens you up to a different way of looking at the world. You realize how much you don't know. And do you know that Americans will make up a very, 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 very small percentage of those who will spend eternity with God? If you look at the church geographically and historically, we're a small little snippet. We are small. And yet God is big and he has called us to be his emissaries. We are his diplomats. We are the bringers of truth and peace and good news to the broken world. That's us. That's who we are, whether we live that way or not. We're winding it down. The third way that we can apply this psalm is that we are to pray for his promises to come to pass. That is our prayer. That must be our prayer. Do you find yourself troubled by the lostness of this world? How about the lostness of this community? And if not, why not? Meditate on this psalm. Meditate on the things we've, we've seen in it today. Take the temperature of your prayer life six months from now and find out, do I pray more about the loss? Do I care more about the loss? And if not, why not? And I would encourage you to encourage one another in this. We spoke last time from Ephesians 4 about the role of the body of Christ in each other's lives. You need each other in this. We need each other in this. We must push each other and encourage each other. And as you preach this to one another, God's name will be made great in your hearts and to all the peoples of the earth. And the family of the gentleman who passed away this week will see that in you, that you care. Not that your job is to help them buy a fire insurance policy. You catch the analogy? We're not just trying to get them a ticket to heaven by praying a prayer. We want them to love God and for His glory to dwell in them. That's what it's about. Finally, just as we've discussed the personal application of translating our blessings to the lost, it's perhaps even more vital and perhaps even more difficult to see this happen within the context of a local church. 
The reality is that most of the New Testament is written to the body together, not to individuals, like we as Americans tend to think. Of course, that's how we understand everything. Jesus is not your co-pilot. But the Great Commission is not new in the New Testament. So let's read the Great Commission together. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And let's see if we can see the parallels with Psalm 67. These other scriptures that we've been reading today. Verse 18. Then Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. In order for the church to be faithful to these things, we are going to have to work to order the way we spend our time and spend our money accordingly. The things that we make a priority as the church. And we will do this against the outside culture. They think we are arrogant if we think they need anything that we have. And yet it, it must not be arrogance. Because remember the gospel? We need the gospel because we're broken. We have nothing apart from what God has given us in Christ. We have nothing. Nothing. And yet we have everything because of what God has given us in Christ. That's what we bring. It's not out of arrogance. It's out of concern and compassion because they matter to God. They are made in the image of God and He has given us this command to fill the earth with His worship. This is why we do missions. Missions exist because worship does not. And when the earth is filled with worship, we no longer need missions. We won't be doing it. All of us who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ are in fact missionaries. All of us. We are missionaries. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, you bring the gospel with you. You carry it. It dwells in you because the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And that is what you were made for. We have been redeemed to once again Live out the purpose for which we were created, filling the earth with the worship of God. And we carry the truth with us as the church everywhere we go as his missionaries. Let's pray. God, you are indeed gracious to us. And you do indeed bless us. We recognize that that blessing is not intended just for us. It is intended to bring you glory in all the earth unto all the peoples until the earth is filled with worship. And we rejoice. God, we are glad. Our heart is lifted up to you. Thank you, Jesus. I pray that your word would penetrate my heart, our hearts this morning, that we would not be the same. 
We thank you for your love for us. Help us to be obedient with a glad heart. We pray this in your name. Amen.